Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, and we're studying this morning verses 18 to 25. Verses 18 to 25. Well, it should come as no surprise that the beliefs for which Christians are arguably most ridiculed today are our beliefs concerning the origins of the universe, the preciousness of human life, and sexuality and gender. Or to put it more simply, Christians today are ridiculed for our beliefs about who we are, where we came from, and how we should relate to one another. Who we are, where we came from, and how we should relate to one another. It shouldn't surprise us that that's the case because these things are the very foundation stones of the whole Bible dealt with here at the very beginning of Scripture, the early chapters of Genesis. Foundations for how God wants human beings to flourish, how we can have a healthy and happy society. Some of the boys and girls here this morning, you've maybe played the game Jenga. You have all these blocks stacked on top of each other. Then you have to take turns taking one block out without the the tar falling down. And some people, they take great delight in trying to take out as many of the blocks at the very bottom of the tar as they possibly can. Uh, Maybe just to collapse the tar instantly. And of course, Satan, being the troublemaker that he is, takes great delight in attacking the foundation stones of human society and identity. Who we are, where we came from, and how we should relate to one another. And this is one of many good reasons for studying the book of Genesis. Every so often we need to remind ourselves of what God says about these foundational issues. In God's providence we come to today's passage less than two weeks after our local government passed a motion wanting to ban so-called gay conversion therapy. And as I said a few weeks ago, as you've likely gathered by now, this is a term that is intentionally vague. You won't find anyone who can give you a clear definition of it. Because those pushing for this ban, whilst claiming to want to outlaw only harmful and manipulative practices, they also want to silence Christians from speaking the truth about who we are, why we're here, and how we relate to one another. And so more than ever, we need to know what we believe about these things. Genesis 2 verses 18 to 25 is often referred to by preachers and authors as the first wedding or the first human marriage. And it certainly does include the first human marriage. But it's not just a passage about marriage. It's not a passage just for married people. It's a passage with important principles for all human relationships, whether you're married or not. It's a passage that teaches us ultimately that human beings are better together. Better together. And I want to use three words to guide us through our thoughts on this passage today. And the first word to think about today is the word companionship. Companionship. Having looked at the the perfect world that God created, we've been studying it for several weeks now. Uh, That being the case, verse 18 of chapter 2 It should stick out like a sore thumb when we get to it. Look what it says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. It is not good. What is this? What, What could this possibly be? 
Uh, Everything we've been reading so far in Genesis has shown us how perfect the world is that God made. What is it that God thinks still needs improvement? Well, of course, as we read these words in Genesis 2.18, remember we we have zoomed in on day six of creation. Uh, Chapter one gave us a, a broad sweep of the whole of creation. And chapter 1 verse 31 said that by the very end of all six days, everything was very good. But we haven't got to that point yet in Genesis 2 verse 18 because we've zoomed in. And there is one thing that God says is still to be completed. Verse 18. It is not good that the man should be alone. It's not good that the man should be alone. Very simple statement. Huge implications. And again it goes beyond just marriage. It tells us that human beings in general. Have not been made to be alone. We have been made for relationships. And for community together. Surely this past year has reminded us profoundly of that. By the very absence of some of the relationships and community. That we have enjoyed till now. The Guardian newspaper reported a few weeks ago that 3.7 million over 16s in the UK always or often feel lonely. And some campaigners would suggest that the stats are far higher than that. And stats like these have led to government reviews and social media campaigns pointing to clear evidence that loneliness is another pandemic that has taken hold in this past year. A few weeks ago, a photograph of the Queen sitting by herself in St. George's Chapel during Prince Philip's funeral service went viral. Lots of people commented on the fact that there was something very disturbing and upsetting about seeing the Queen sitting all by herself as she marked her husband's death. And of course, hundreds of thousands of ordinary citizens have gone through something similar in the last 12 months. It's sadly ironic too that the rates of loneliness have increased in our country at a time when there are more means of communication than we've ever had. We can pop up on each other's TV or laptop or phone screens in an instant and and talk to one another. And yet some people are lonelier than ever because videos and screens are not the same as real companionship. All of this to say, friends, we know deep down that these words are true. It is not good for anyone to be alone. And this applies whether you're single or married, widowed or divorced, part of a young family or in your senior years. You don't have to be single to feel alone. Sadly, some marriages are incredibly lonely places. You don't have to live by yourself to feel alone. Some full houses are incredibly lonely places. The first thing in the history of the world that God said was not good was loneliness. And so he provided the perfect companion for Adam. And the clear teaching of the Bible shows us that we don't have to be married to experience wonderful companionship as human beings. Just consider the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no one more human than Jesus Christ. I thought a little bit about this a few weeks ago. We saw how Jesus was and is the most completely and fully human being there has ever been. And yet Jesus never had a wife. But what he did have were wonderfully close human relationships of other kinds. He had his 12 disciples 
As dim and difficult as they could be sometimes, nevertheless, Jesus loved them and they were his friends. There were women in Jesus' life with whom he enjoyed wonderful friendships. Mary and Martha, Joanna, Susanna, the women who, while the disciples were hiding behind locked doors, the women who bravely went to Jesus' tomb on the day of his resurrection, some of his closest followers and friends. Jesus also had a good relationship with his mother. You remember his words to John as he died on the cross, telling him to look after his mother. And there are other examples, of course, of wonderful friendship in the Bible. Moses and Aaron and David and Jonathan and Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Timothy. If you look at the end of some of Paul's letters, they're full of names of people who were wonderful friends to him, brothers and sisters in Christ. In places like Rome and Philippi and so on. And so friends a healthy human life is one full of companionship. We should seek out and cultivate good Christian friendship. It's not just hard to live the Christian life alone. It's impossible to live the Christian life alone. We're not following uh, the commands and examples of Jesus. If we think the Christian life is only about me and God. It's about God and us. And of course a real relationship is not just about being so-called Facebook friends or Instagram followers. There's a great deal of shallowness in those things. Real friendship involves face-to-face quality time. Doing things you enjoy doing. Travelling to places you enjoy going together. Working together. Enjoying life together. And when it comes to marriage in particular, if marriage is part of God's plan for our lives, marriage should be the best companionship in our lives. It should be a clear and powerful and wonderful example of all of these things. Sometimes at wedding services I cringe when the minister starts talking about the purposes of marriage. Usually the first thing, often anyway, the first thing that he says is that marriage is for the purpose of having children. Now that may be one purpose of a marriage, although not every married couple is able to have children. And even if they do, someday those children will be gone. They'll fly the nest, they'll live their own lives. What will be the point of the marriage then? Friends, the first and most vital aspect of marriage, or purpose of marriage, is friendship. It's friendship, companionship. And so those of us who are married, are we taking care of that in our marriage? Are we nurturing our friendship? One preacher says a lot of married life is inevitably and necessarily lived side to side. You're working side to side on whatever responsibilities you have in the home or outside the home. But there also needs to be time for face-to-face. Face-to-face conversations, time spent together making memories, enjoying each other's company. And human life in general, and church life in particular, should also be marked by cultivating and protecting and cherishing friendship, regardless of marital status. And again, hopefully as restrictions ease, as church, in, a, in, a, in church life we can get back to some aspects of this that maybe we haven't been able to enjoy as much in in recent months, nurturing our fellowship and friendship. Charles Spurgeon once described the church as the dearest place on earth. 
Certainly the church should be the least lonely place on earth. It should be a place where all people, married, widowed or single, people of all different ages, personalities, interests, have good companionship together as God designed it from the very beginning. So companionship. A second word to help us meditate upon this passage this morning Uh, And maybe a word that we don't use very much because it's a very awkward sounding word. Uh, But the second word is complementarity. Complementarity. Bit of a mouthful. I know it's breaking a bit of a rule for preachers that your heading should be as simple as possible. But what does complementarity mean? It means that two things fit together. Two things fit together. They complement each other. They belong together. And God's solution to Adam's being alone, verse 18 Is to make him a helper fit for him. The the translation in the ESV says. A helper fit for him. Uh, And there's a sense of anticipation when we read those words. Who is God going to provide? What will this helper be like? And that sense of anticipation only grows. as As Adam takes in this great parade of animals. That goes past him. Verses 19 to 20 says. Every living creature was shown to Adam. And he named them. One writer says this is our first glimpse of man as a scientist. Uh, Boys and girls, maybe some of you, your favorite subject at school is science. Well, here Adam is a bit of a scientist. He's he's looking at all the animals. He's listening to what they sound like. He's having a a good investigation of them. And he's, he's taking note of who they all are and gives them all their names. But we're told that for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Notice the word again there. It wasn't a a creature that complemented him, that was a good fit for him. And so although probably we've heard the story before, we're supposed to be on the edge of our seats. What's God going to do? Who is God going to provide for Adam? Well, you remember we saw how God took special care in making Adam the first man. He was made differently from every other creature, from the dust of the ground, uh, the breath of life breathed into him and so forth. Well, similarly now, God takes special care in the creation of the helper for Adam. The woman is not just zapped into existence. God doesn't just snap his fingers, so to speak, and there she is. No, look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man... He made into a woman and brought her to the man. God chooses to make the woman in an equally intimate and special way as he did with Adam. Not only that, but he makes the woman from the man, from his side in fact. Emphasizing to both of them in due time that they are again made for each other. That they complete and complement each other. Our translation says that God made a helper Fit for the man. It could also be corresponding to the man. And and the woman is also described as a helper for the man. Some people don't like that word helper. They think that that sounds like a bit of a put down. It's sort of making less of the woman. That she was just tagging along as a little helper. Well that's not the sense of the word at all. Bear in mind two things when you hear that word helper. First of all, the same word is used to describe God several times 
in Scripture. Psalm 33 verse 20, for example, describes God as our help and, and our shield. It's a word that's also used several times to describe overwhelming military assistance. So imagine an army fighting, struggling to fight on the battlefield. They're about to be defeated. And then the cavalry comes riding over the hill. The help comes and they're victorious. That's the word that is used here to describe the woman. And as well as that, when we hear the word helper, friends, it's because men need a lot of help, as I often remind my wife. Men are not all powerful. And as every wife knows, they are also not all-knowing. Men need help. In fact, we all need help, men and women. Others are strong where we are weak and vice versa. Others know things that we don't and vice versa. Others have gifts that we don't and vice versa. And God has created all of us, male and female, to complement and to help and to fit one another. It's always tremendously satisfying. It's one of the most satisfying experiences you can have when you get to be part of a really good team. Maybe some of you played on a particularly good rugby or football or hockey team at school or after school. Maybe some of you have served on one of our church camp teams. Uh, Maybe some of you have a really good team of colleagues in your workplace that you enjoy working with. There's nothing like it when a, when a team is, is, is complementing each other and working well together. That's how God has designed human experience, friends. And again, a good marriage should simply be one particularly good example of this. The account makes clear here two things about the man and woman. That they are equal and that they are different. Equal but different. Neither of them were any more of an image bearer of God than the other. But they also had different and corresponding roles. Genesis 1.27 says. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So they're equally image bearers of God. But it's also undeniable that God made the man and the woman different. Physically men and women are made to fit together. As the most intimate aspect of marriage demonstrates. Emotionally they are made to fit together. And it's not that men and women have different emotions, but they often express them in different ways, masculine or feminine ways, and in doing so, they complement each other. Matthew Henry, the famous Puritan commentator, he perhaps best explains all this and sums it up when he says that the woman was, quote, not made out of the man's head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side To be equal with him. Under his arm to be protected. And near his heart to be beloved. Now some of this if not all of this. Is wildly unpopular today. In case you hadn't noticed. Some of what I've just said. If an MP said it. Or a BBC presenter said it. They would be sacked immediately. Our culture is increasingly dominated by third wave feminism, which rejects all of this, and by the LGBT movement that distorts all of this. And they have largely succeeded in encouraging our society to throw off all of these biblical understandings of male and female and family and friendship and sexuality. How's all of that going? 
How's it going in our society today which has cast off God's commands and directives for these things? How are we getting on with this grand experiment of turning our back upon this teaching? Well, as I said earlier, we're lonelier than we've ever been. In the last few hundred years, our society has never been further away from embracing and submitting or at least respecting these things. And the result is our society is a mess. People who sleep around are creating emotional and physical heartbreak for themselves and others. We have more single mothers, abortion rates higher than ever, divorce higher than ever, loneliness more widespread than ever. And much of it is to do with the fact that these teachings are being ignored and ridiculed. And friends, it's because in a sense our society has turned its back on God's design. And whilst we mourn that and are discouraged by that, sometimes we ask ourselves, how can we be better evangelists? What, what can we do to be witnesses in our society today? Well, one way, friends, is by protecting and celebrating and defending marriage and family. By sticking together, staying together, loving one another, so that the world would ask, well, what is it that you have that we don't? What is making the difference in your life, in your friendships, in your church, in your marriage? We're made in God's image to be companions with one another, to complement each other in general, and in particular in marriage. And by God's grace, we seek to be witnesses in this regard as well. So companionship, complementarity, and the third and final word to consider this morning is the word covenant. Covenant. The last three verses of chapter 2 describe the first wedding day as God, the the maker, and you could say that the father of the woman presents her to the man, walks her down the aisle, so to speak. And having had that parade of animals and not felt too excited at the sight of the giraffe or the elephant, you can hear the joy in Adam when he finally sees his wife. Verse 23, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. These are the first recorded words of the first human being and they quite possibly were words of song. They're certainly poetic words in the original. He is delighted, he is overjoyed as he sees his perfect companion given to him by God. And then the man, as as the human leader, names his wife and even the name he gives her uh, shows the the connectedness, the complementary nature of the two of them. He says she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Uh, And the English brings out the, the connection between the two just as the original language does as well. Man and woman. Then we have these famous words, the marriage ceremony, so to speak, in verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul repeated these words in our reading from Ephesians. Jesus repeated these words when he was asked about divorce in his day. Some people try to claim today that Jesus has nothing to say about homosexuality or same-sex marriage. Not true. Jesus quoted Genesis 2.24. That is Jesus' position on marriage. One man, one woman joined together in every sense, permanently committed to each other. That is God's design. 
And what we see here is a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship. The man and the woman are brought together by God. They have a God-given purpose together to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion and so forth. And they are to remain faithful to God and each other for the rest of their lives. And those three phrases in verse 22 sum up this covenant between the man and the woman. Leave, cleave and one flesh. Leave, cleave and one flesh. And this is still the the pattern for marriage today. A man and a woman leave their parents' households. They leave to to make one new household together. They leave. And then they cleave. Or as the ESV has it, hold fast. They hold fast. And the word in in the original there literally means to stick to each other. Physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually, in every way. The married man and woman hold fast together. And in doing so they become one flesh. One flesh. This is talking about their physical intimacy. And also about their their ability to produce new life. From the two comes one God willing. And so marriage friends is a covenant. And as is often rightly said at weddings. It's not to be entered into lightly or casually. It's to be taken with the utmost seriousness. It's a public commitment to God, to society and to each other. That they will leave and cleave and become one flesh. This means that redefining marriage so that people of the same sex can get married. As much as we see the harm of that, as much as that is wicked and we have witnessed a trust against that and we don't want that. In a sense, on one level, friends, it doesn't matter how the world tries to define marriage. Marriage is what God says it is, no matter what laws are passed or what changes are made. And Genesis 2 shows us how he's done that, how he has defined it, how he has designed it. One man, one woman, together for life. That's one reason that marriage should be honoured and should not be redefined. But there's another reason. Marriage between one man and one woman isn't just designed to be a profound blessing for the couple and if they have children for them also and for society. It's also designed to be a picture of the most precious and important covenant relationship of all. And that is the covenant relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. We read earlier from Ephesians 5.32 as Paul reflects on those words from Genesis. One flesh, he says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Among other things, Paul is saying that by cherishing and valuing and loving his wife, a Christian husband is to show something, something of how much Christ was willing to do and how much he was willing to love for his church. How much the Lord Jesus was willing to sacrifice for his church. And in helping her husband and submitting to his care and leadership. The woman is showing something of how the church gladly submits to the care and leadership of Christ. Christ has loved us and given himself up for us. We were not the stunning bride that Eve was when Adam first saw her. There was nothing beautiful or attractive spiritually in you or me that prompted Jesus to leave his throne and come to this earth. 
He came into this world on a rescue mission for wicked, selfish, ugly sinners. Spiritually, that's who we are by nature. Whether we are married or not, whether uh, our marriage goes the distance or not, whatever our society may think of us, by nature, this is who we are. But if we are in Christ, if we are bonded to him through his covenant love, we are washed, we are justified, we are sanctified, we have been and are being made beautiful and spotless and pure, like a bride on her wedding day, ready to see her king when he finally comes. Every time we attend a wedding or see a marriage that is healthy and holy, We're seeing a picture of the eternal, merciful, abundant, covenant love that Jesus has for us, regardless of our marital status. Love that sent him to the cross in our place for our sin. A love that is ours now and forever. A love that truly he will never leave us or forsake us. We should consider all our relationships, our friendships, our family life as opportunities to imitate the love of Jesus Christ with one another. To be companions together, to complement each other, to celebrate Christ's covenant together. And so friends, in a lonely world, I hope and pray that this will not be a lonely church for anyone. May we be mindful of each other's needs. May we cultivate good companionship with one another. And in so doing, may we show this lonely world something of the covenant love of Jesus Christ for sinners. Amen.